Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO, and today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got a special guest for us today, a friend of mine, someone who's become a friend over the last couple years here at Project Purple as we have started to dive into early detection for pancreatic cancer, in particular with our Proceed Consortium. I want to welcome Dr. Randy Brandt here to the Project Purple podcast from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He is the director of the Hereditary GI Tumor Program and is a gastroenterologist. I said that perfectly. Randy, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Dino. Uh, it's been wonderful working with Project Purple and their support of Proceed, um, which, of course, uh, is truly reflects my uh, academic and clinical uh, interests. You know, I date back many years. I did my medical school and residency at the University of Michigan, and then in the early 90s went out to UC San Francisco and did my GI fellowship. I subsequently ended up at the University of Nebraska for my first faculty position, and that is where I actually developed my interest in pancreatic cancer. I had the opportunity to have two wonderful mentors in my career at Nebraska. The first one, Margaret Tempero, who was an oncologist who had a strong academic interest in pancreatic cancer and developed uh, the, the it, we actually submitted in Nebraska had the first pancreatic cancer spore, which is a specialized program of research excellence in pancreatic cancer. Um, I was doing endoscopic ultrasounds and that gave me the opportunity uh, to uh, in that sport to actually start working on my first early detection project with some collaborators at Creighton University, which uh, is also located in Omaha, Nebraska. And there I, I met Dr. Henry Lynch, who is felt to be, by many of us, the grandfather of uh, cancer genetics from a, from a medical field. Um, the Lynch syndrome, of course, is named after him, which is a uh, colorectal uh, cancer predisposition. Um, that's passed down in families that he recognized that, interestingly enough, also uh, confers some increased risk for pancreatic cancer. So I started screening those families that, w that were at increased risk for pancreatic cancer. My career uh, has expanded academically, and I, uh, after a brief stint uh, affiliated with Northwestern in Chicago, I've been at the University of Pittsburgh now for 14 years. That is awesome. And you know what? I'm going to play connect the dots here for a quick second for audience listening at home. So those that know Project Purple well, we do a, we've done a lot with the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So it's it's kind of funny. I don't know if we've ever talked about that. I think maybe you have mentioned it, but I I never heard like the full in-depth about you know. So that's where, you know, of course, Tony Hollingsworth, yeah. and he was a, a, you know, we were all, he was an associate, I think I was an assistant, but, you know, Surrender Botrick is my clinical validation center is actually with the University of Nebraska for my grant, my one of my UO1s, they're co-PIs with me. So I've been working with them for years. So 
you know, people don't appreciate that Nebraska is such a strong basic science program. What really hurts them is the lack of clinical volume, but you're out in the state of Nebraska. You're in the middle of nowhere, right? Well, not in the middle of nowhere. You're in the middle of the country. So, it, it you know, you've got a state that I think what Nebraska has, I forget. 600,000 people in the whole state. No, wait, 1.6 million people Correct. in the whole state. So I know. Yeah, I was going to say 2 million, but I, I think I, you're, I'm glad you corrected me because I know this is fact. On game day in Lincoln, the stadium, municipal stadium, becomes the third largest city in Nebraska by itself on college game day which is just so That's fascinating. Correct. You know, that happens in other states. I think in Utah, when uh, BYU plays, I think that stadium becomes, you know, the, one of the largest cities in the in the, uh, in the the state of Utah. So it's not uncommon that happens. But again, in Nebraska, you know, you just don't have the population mass, uh, but it, they do do some amazing things. And Margaret, you know, is a good friend of ours here at Project Purple. We've never worked with her personally, but We've, we know each other. And so that connection there is just really, really fascinating, you know, and um, just knowing the work that we've done in Nebraska, just great to see, you know, people go on and, and build great things. And you stayed in kind of the Big Ten there for a while. Then you, you jumped over to the ACC there for, if we, for our football fans. Okay. Well, it was the Big East when I first moved Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 14 years ago. Yeah. yeah. But, but don't forget that Nebraska went to the Big Ten. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they weren't back then. They were the big eight. That's you right. Know? But, but what was interesting, my wife was a faculty member at Lincoln. So she used to drive an hour and is a bioengineer. And so she was school. So we had season tickets for football through her, which were very valuable. We had to write it into her contract to get season football tickets so that we could get them. <laughs> back then, I mean, they still sell out their games when they when they have people in the stands. Oh, but you know, back then, that was longest string of sellouts, and people used to wear their Friday, Sunday best when they would go to the game. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's like an experience. The, have you ever been to a Husker game? I have not, Randy. And so we, you know, quite honestly, I'm a little spoiled. And I'll, I'll tell the audience a quick story. You know, we've been involved with the Lincoln Marathon for, I think, almost six years. And the Lincoln Marathon starts outside municipal and ends on the 50-yard line. And the first year we're out there, I said, well, I'm not running the race, so I got to be down on the finish line. And, and you know, the people from Nebraska kind of looked at me silly and said, you can't do that. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't do that? And they're like, well, you know, no one's allowed on the field other than the athletes. And then, you know, when you finish the marathon, they like really escort you really quick off the field and everything, you know, it's like hollowed ground. So I, I met the race director and I said, hey, I'd really love to be down at the finish line. And she's like, absolutely. So that's uh, that's my municipal stadium experience is I get to be down at the finish line every marathon Sunday with the Lincoln Marathon, which is pretty cool. But so I, I said to the race director last year, because this question comes up a lot, you know, hey, you got to come back for a game. You got to come back for a game. And I just, you know, this was going to be the year that I would come for a game. I was going to try to make it work with my schedule. And I said, but yeah, but you know, I'm so spoiled being here at the marathon that I want to be down on the field. And I said, well, no, no one happened. None of that ever happens for a, a real football game. It's like virtually impossible to get down to the field uh, during a game. But, uh, you know, that's my goal is somehow to get down on the field for a game, to watch a game on the field. But we'll see. I know that sounds a little silly, uh, but you know that's uh, th those are high goals. I like having big goals. So I'll find a way, maybe I'll DM Scott Frost a, a, a thousand times and maybe throw in all the work we've done with the University of Nebraska Medical Center as a way to get us down on the field for a game. <laughs> we'll see if it works. Yep, no, that's funny. Yeah, one of the most... Um 
popular uh, Nebraska players was my daughter's very first friend when we moved, and my son's, his older brother's, my son's, uh, they were best friends. They were best friends at each other's wedding. It was a guy by the name of Alex Henry. So he was a kicker for Nebraska. And, he, and the fans just loved him. He was like All-American. He kicked for a couple of years for the Eagles and then um, was actually drafted. So, but then he just never cut it in the pros. Wow. It's, it's, it's so crazy. You know, Nebraska football is just, you know, there's so many players in the NFL and, and, you know, there's the, the history and the lore of it is just, it goes, you know, throughout the country, throughout the NFL. And, and you know, it's really something, I mean, I know the past couple of years have been tough um, because I think the tide has shifted on elsewhere, i.e. the tide uh, in Alabama, you know, in terms of college football. Uh, but, you know, they are making kind of a rebound, you know, this year is just a, a really, funny year with every with with sports as a whole um they do have you know frost back and stuff so i i think they've got better days ahead of them so hopefully you know all our our husker fans listen you have a young team in the way practices have been limited and, and yeah disjointed. yeah you know, absolutely fine if you have a, a machine and you're slotting people in that are a little bit more senior but when you have young people it's it, it particularly exacerbates the situation absolutely absolutely so practice differently too you limit the contact yeah, it's, it's all right. Should we go on? We'll talk more. We'll talk more football later. I got a question yeah, for you. Probably the most important question for you here. I know you said you know mentor, big mentor was for you was Margaret, and then Doctor Lynch over at Creighton. But why pancreatic cancer? Was there something, you know, someone maybe uh, along the way, Randy? I mean, I know we, we've talked about this in, in the past with, you know, yeah. clinicians. But I'm always kind of curious to understand why this disease, and I know GI is such a broad focus as well because it goes from the the front to the back, and you know there's a lot of in between, and so this is kind of specialized in a way. Yep. No, you're 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 absolutely right. You know, uh, I always tell actually younger faculty and, and trainees now that when you're um, when when you when you you have to recognize that if you want to succeed in academics, you, you need mentors. And people are always given opportunities and you have to be willing to seize them. And I could remember early on from within my first year of being at um, Nebraska, Margaret Tempro saying to me, you know, back then endoscopic ultrasounds were not very common. And so I was self-taught with one of our radiologists and she said, really, most of the, at that time, it was applied to cancer staging. And she says, if you really want to understand GI oncology um, and, and, and be a good endosonographer, you should really understand the oncology aspects as well, when it would be used, how it would be applied. So I started going to, during my academic day to her clinic and working in her oncology clinic and started actually working on some trials. And in the first trial that I uh, that I, I helped her with, and, and actually I have a first author paper on, is uh, when gemcitabine, gemzar, was being and tested. And, uh, we were doing it at a fixed dose rate infusion. And um, and so with, with Eli Lilly is a phase one uh, study to find out what rate could be tolerated. So, I started taking care of a lot of pancreatic cancer patients. And I can remember Dr. Kemp wrote 
you know, telling me that it's there's a lot of people studying colon cancer. There's a lot of people studying other GI cancers, and, and their mortality rates are not nearly as extreme as pancreas. If you want to have a chance to make a difference and to be recognized, then you should, you know, maybe pick a disease that uh, that you know really needs you. And so back, that's what drove me into the '90s into studying pancreatic cancer was. The, the need that I saw both by caring for all these patients who, most of them whom had advanced disease, then working with and seeing that there's families that are at risk and doing a, a study. This is well before MRIs were being established for care even in the, the, uh, the pancreas was, um, because endoscopic ultrasounds could pick up the smallest neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas. So we thought maybe we should apply that and, and try to, to figure out ways of, of diagnosing it earlier. So that's really what led me into pancreatic cancer was the, uh, the seeing the need and recognizing that that was a field that I could potentially make a difference in. Well, we're glad you, you saw that need and you're in this space. So it, it, the term early detection, let's let's talk about that because I know you you're just said like, you know, back in the 90s, like, you know, EUS wasn't really a thing and I'm sure MRI wasn't being done back then. You know, the shift to early detection and in particular, you know, that when did that occur and when did we start thinking about like high risk families? I mean, I know you, was it even back then in the nineties, Randy, that you were starting to see just like families with just like father, grandfather, or great grandfather with, or, you know, brothers or siblings with this disease that just kind of, Hey, like there's something in the water, I guess is the analogy that I've heard many of times. Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. And, and it may be, most people hearing this now would never believe this, but Dr. Lynch, when he started doing his research in the seventies, wasn't a lot of people didn't believe that cancer was passed down genetically in the families. Crazy. They all thought it was from environmental risks yeah. and didn't want to look at the hereditary component. And we didn't have the capabilities uh, of, of really uh, easily identifying genetic risk. So, but you could see in, in what Dr. Lynch was, was superb about was reaching out to these families and getting these extended family histories where you could see excess numbers of cases. And what you'll see in most of these families is there may, some, some families may just have pancreatic cancer, but most hereditary syndromes today have put you at risk for not only pancreatic cancer, but extra additional cancers as well that like breast or ovarian or, or, um, colon. So there, this seems to be this link of all these families. And it's, we initially, when we started doing it and, and, and uh, you know, we thought, Oh, you know, naively we could screen the whole population, but, we didn't have a great test to screen for it. You have to realize back then, gemcitabine was just becoming approved in the 90s, and that wasn't because it made a survival difference. Uh, it was that it, it made people feel better, it improved their quality of life compared to 5-FU, which was the only other treatment. <laughs> so 
back then, pancreatic cancer was was really a, a, a almost you know everyone said you, why worry about it why study it because everyone died of pancreatic cancer. But what I've seen and, and why I'm more optimistic now than I ever been have seen the transition from because of targeted therapies, because of our improved treatment, because of over the years our technological advances uh, of imaging that we're able to now do what we would consider early detection. Because keep in mind, when we talk about screening for a cancer, that's when you take the general population who's not at an increased risk and you apply a test and you lower that person's risk of dying of that cancer. And so with colon cancer, for example, as a GI doctor, of course, this is the poster child for cancer screening. Mm -hmm. Patients can undergo colonoscopies. We remove polyps, which only few polyps will ever turn into cancer. We have no way to know that as a gastroenterologist, which one's bad, which one isn't. But we know if we remove those polyps, that lowers your risk for getting colon cancer. And so pancreas cancer is too rare for us ever to screen the general population. But we can do what we call surveillance, which is looking for it in patients who are at an increased risk. So back in the 90s, the reason why I got into it was is that, and, and I fondly remember the slide that uh, Dr. Lynch actually had of an ostrich with his head in the sand. <laughs> and the whole point was is that these families come to you looking for something, some help, because they've had multiple relatives die of pancreatic cancer. And we could either ignore the fact that we didn't have any data and just tell them there's nothing we can do, or we can at least try to give them what was the best back in the 90s. And some of these things that we still do still hold true now. But the, the difference being that with our improvements in surgery, you have to realize that the surgical improvements over the last 30 years have been dramatic. I mean, people were very reluctant to do surgery on the pancreas, but we know surgery is very important to curing them. So as we made these advances, we've been able to go back to that rule that I was telling you about for cancer screening or surveillance, that can you actually make someone live longer and, and ideally survive their cancer, not die of it. And so that's why we're starting to see now with better surgeries, better uh, treatments, the five-year survival rate is starting to lengthen out. To Now we're in double digits, 10%. It doesn't seem like a lot, but when I was first starting, it was a couple percent. That's so amazing and fascinating. I, I know from talking, like we've had a couple of surgeons on and I know, you know, the Whipple is the one main surgery, not one, but I know there's, there's a couple of other surgeries that potentially could be done. Um, but the Whipple, I know that, you know, from talking to many surgeons and the surgeon that we had last talked about, you know, just the fact that they've gotten better over the years, even though it's, because I said, you know, it's the same surgery that's been done for since I think, you know, the early 70s, I think they started doing one, maybe even earlier than that. But they have just gotten better at performing Whipples and making sure that, you know, the 
margin of error in terms of any type of surgery. Naturally, you want it zero, but you know they've gotten better at performing the Whipples, uh, better at recovery with patients recovering quicker from the Whipples, having less complications, and that's really critical to survival. You know, in this space, something that you mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, in terms of families, when did you start really kind of venturing into that space, Randy, of getting family directories set up or, you know, starting to to really engage families to get into surveillance? Was it when you got a, 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 to Pittsburgh or was it before potentially? So, you know, uh, the way Dr. Lynch did his research, it, it was really the foundation for what I've adopted and what many others have adopted throughout the, the, the world. I mean, he, he collaborated internationally. And so he used to collect families, back then collect DNA on them so they could search for the genes that were responsible. And these families then would serve as a as identifying those individuals that are high risk. And life is a lot easier now because we we've as we build up these families and they're put into these research registries, we're able to see, you know, subset of them have known hereditary syndromes now. And in part it's because a lot of these families, we were able to collect the, um, their DNA and use them for research to identify what genes put them to at risk. And he would get multiple family members, often blocks from people that had passed away of the different cancers, so that you could see where which genetic mutations tracked. So when you started to being able to identify individuals that are at risk either by carrying a mutation and, and, and knowing that the family's at risk for pancreatic cancer for that particular syndrome, or where you have clusters of pancreatic cancer, we felt that these are the best families to initially study because we were able to, to demonstrate at Ralph Rubin was, and, and Johns Hopkins was the first to show that when you started studying these familial pancreatic cancer kindreds, clusters of pancreatic cancer cases, that if you had several pancreatic cancer cases that were directly related, what we you know, what we would call first-degree relatives of each other, and you were a first-degree relative of a pancreatic cancer case, that your risk was at least, you know, four to six-fold over the general population. And the more pancreatic cancer cases that you were related to, the greater the risk became. So if you're going to apply, if you go back to what we, we, we chatted about earlier, where I said we didn't have a great test for for proving that we could find pancreatic cancer early when we could cure it, that if it, 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 it's so rare that uh, pancreatic cancer is an occurrence, that if you're going to look at a population that may develop pancreatic cancer, it's going to be these hereditary families. And so when I started seeing them, the ideal way to do it, we were hoping, was to bank blood. Back then, we didn't know, and we still don't know, all the genetics behind what puts someone at risk. So we bank it for DNA, but we also started collecting blood for biomarker research. And so that's usually serum, plasma, um, but you know, you could we save at, at times other biological parts. And so to 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 really get all of that in an organized manner, you develop family registries. And so, and 
nowadays, because we really emphasize the blood, most of our hereditary work, we, we prefer the patient at least to have visits with us periodically so we can try to make these important advances with biomarkers. So, so that's how I got into the registry business. So in Nebraska, it was pretty much run through Dr. Lynch when I moved to Northwestern and then really blossomed when I got to Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I, 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 each place had their own registry, but Pittsburgh, we were really able to expand because of our high volume of pancreatic cancer patients and, and, and uh, our network through our UPMC healthcare system. So I've got a question and something that you mentioned, and it took a note here. Do you think there's clusters or hot pockets of areas in the country where we have, you know, large populations of people? I mean, naturally, this could be kind of a a trick question in the sense that, yeah, naturally, where there's more people, there's going to be more incidences, similar to like, as you were saying, in Nebraska, you know, there's not a high volume there just because of the population, you got 1.6 million people. But naturally, as you go into bigger settings or bigger cities or bigger states, you're going to have these larger pockets of, of people that have this. But are there just from a geographical standpoint, you know, more people in that Ohio River Valley compared maybe to the Southern Delta? You know, Exposure histories is what you're implying, something different, unique about the environment. Yes, there is probably a component of that, but a lot of it has to also do with the age of the population. So the older age, pancreatic cancer is still an older age disease, even in the most part in the hereditary syndrome. When you see a lot of the hereditary cases like breast, we can all think of all these early age onset breast cancers and how you have to be worried about BRCA mutations. Same thing with Dr. Lynch with a lot of his colon cancer patients. There are a few patients with pancreatic cancer that develop it at an early age. Most of those are not related to known hereditary syndromes. When you look at the hereditary syndromes, the age of diagnosis is very close to the age of diagnosis of of the uh, what we would call non-hereditary cases or sporadic pancreatic cancers. So as we improve treatments for heart disease, as we improve treatments for other um, cancers, then we're seeing more pancreatic cancer. Now, is that also, so as our patients age, so, you know, we're starting to get our average age of living goes on longer as well. So, uh, you know, uh, more and more seeing pancreatic cancer. Um, The biggest risk factor is smoking. So we know if we can get people to stop smoking, um, that's a modifiable risk factor. That'll, that will help diminish a, a, a significant subset of pancreatic cancer cases as well. So if you're in areas where smoking's frowned upon, you may see a slight decreased risk of cancer, mm-hmm. healthier lifestyles with obesity and exercise. Um, the Midwest, and I consider Pittsburgh sort of a mi- more Midwest mentality than an East Coast mentality, tends not always to have uh, some of the uh, healthier uh, eating habits. And of course, we had our steel mills for very many years here, but although there's no longer any steel mills in the city of Pittsburgh, um, you know, whether those play a a slight increased risk, they probably do. I have no evidence to support that statement. So please do not take that as gospel. (laughs) But I I think it's, um, there's probably something there. So there's more of a cluster effect than you would probably say in, in some of the environmental issues versus necessarily hereditary. So 
conceivably someone in Nebraska who has a, a family history of pancreatic cancer can be the same as someone in New York City who has a similar family background with pancreatic cancer as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, this 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 highlights a, c a couple things while we're on the topic of registries. I just want to emphasize, you know, we've had our registry ongoing for many, many years, established. The, the only way that we could be successful with our research is any one center. Fortunately, very few of our patients that we follow develop pancreatic cancer. But if we want to come up with tests to figure out which subset of patients are going to, at risk for developing it, which ones aren't, so that we can maybe make things less invasive, maybe come up with a more easy blood test that can be applied to that patient when that's abnormal, go to a more expensive imaging test. Um, we can only do that if we have enough patient events. In the way, you know, these events are bad, of course, developing pancreatic cancer, but when you're looking at rates of less than one out of 100 every year following someone that may get pancreatic cancer, um, it shows you the importance of pulling patients together. And that's where I think uh, the work of Project Purple has been critical, um, funding Proceed. And that's why uh, when Diane reached out to me, I was the first person I'm proud to say that she reached out to to um, to, to help start Proceed. Um, that's Diane Simeone, by the way, um, for, <laughs> since I realize we're, I, we're on a, a podcast. I better throw that out. He's at NYU, who um, has definitely worked quite hard with Dino and, and Project Purple to, to launch this. Um, I was I jumped on board because we can only do this, and and what makes this collaboration so unique is the emphasis on getting blood samples in so many centers involved that um, we we should be able to, to answer these questions in a much shorter time, and I think you know uh, to me. I've become close to a lot of these families still follow me from when I took care of them in Nebraska. They come out to Pittsburgh to see, mm. you know, I go to uh, one of our patients since Nebraska doesn't have any professional teams. We go to a, a pirate's cave every year <laughs> when he comes out for a screening. So we, you know, uh, um, we, I, we have traditions that we've started with many of our, my patients that come from a, a far distance. Um, to come see me and nothing would make me happier than to find a, a test that's more convenient for them, you know, and, and seeing these efforts. But I have to admit being one of the individuals that helps write guidelines for pancreatic cancer surveillance, it may sound a little bit self-serving that we say you should go to an expert center, but I think uh, to get your surveillance, but I think the one take home message of, I want anyone from the podcast, to come home with is the importance of participating in these registries and in these this type of research and going to these centers because we can only learn how to best manage families that you're a member of by having uh, all this information collected and standardized and done in a manner that it can be shared because Going back to my roots at the University of Nebraska, that state was so small that they didn't have that many cases of pancreatic cancer, but they have outstanding researchers. And I actually still collaborate on one of our big UO1 grants with uh, Dr. Surrender Batra and mm -hmm. his group out at the University of Nebraska for looking for early detection 
biomarkers in the blood. And we can do that by leveraging the number of pancreatic cancer cases I have in my registry beyond my just hereditary cases and use that as a, uh, as a tool to hopefully uh, where there's wonderful basic science, but they don't have the access to these clinical samples. And so I think when you're in a, a, a consortium like Proceed, where the goal is to share these resources and be part of the cure, you don't have to necessarily, I don't have to be that person that discovers that biomarker. But if, I, if my patients help that, then all the blood that my patients and all the, 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 uh, the tests that my patients have done and, and their willingness to participate in research pays off because at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't do me any good to leave my freezer filled with all these samples when patients donated them with the hope that it would lead to research. And realistically, all that research cannot be done at the University of Pittsburgh. It's got to be done at, you know, whatever best tests are out there. And that could include industry. I mean, we, we industry is not a bad thing. We got to get the, I, I think you could see that now with COVID vaccines, you know, the, the, the industry is driving it, but they can get it out to our patients quickly. So that's a good thing. It's, it's powerful to see what COVID has done for the cancer community because, you know, and, and what I mean by that is like, you see how fast this thing has moved. And, and, and part of me, Randy, gets really upset. Like, damn, man, like we need that behind pancreatic cancer and just think of what we could do, you know, and, but, you know, I understand, you know, it's a 58,000 person, you know, 250,000, I think in the world, you know, contract, or, uh, I don't know if that number is actual, I think it's a little bit no, more. I think it's actually a lot higher. In the a world, lot higher right? in the world, but here in the United States, 58,000 people, right. Compared to, yeah. you know, COVID, which, you know, where I think we're at 10 million now positive in the, in the United States. So I, I do understand, you know, it doesn't impact as many people, but it does go to show when you get the machine moving in the right direction, what can potentially happen in a positive way. I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, we're, we're talking about high risk, but for the program there at UPMC, someone comes in for high risk. What does that look like? What are they doing? How often are they doing that? So I, I always like to, to, to tell the patients that, you know, I'll, I'll do colonoscopies and I'll beat the patients down in the GI lab because it's, uh, I know that there's data that supports, again, that colonoscopies save lives. What we do at, 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 uh, at UPMC, and has always been my model, is the first time that a patient who feels that they may be at increased risk for developing pancreatic cancer, and I want to emphasize the point that usually just one first-degree relative with pancreatic cancer without a lot of other history to support a, a hereditary syndrome doesn't necessarily put you at risk for surveillance. Um, it, it would be consideration for genetic testing if that individual with pancreatic cancer did not have the opportunity to have genetic testing, uh, with the off chance of 5% if you're not affected by pancreatic cancer being found to be a member of one of those hereditary syndromes. So what we do when patients are concerned and doctors refer them to our clinic or they come in just because they've heard about our clinic, they sit down with myself and a genetic counselor. Now, they've already been seen with a genetic counselor, then they usually just sit down by, with myself. We, we, we get the extended pedigree so we could better define risk. We can see whether or not genetic t 
testing with our known panel of pancreatic cancer susceptibility genes that we know works at least in 2020, the best data we have in 2020. That will be different than what we offer in 2025 as, as we learn more and expand more. And we go through the different nuances with them if there's clustering. And so we really look then to say, do you meet current consensus guidelines for screening for pancreatic, for surveillance of pancreatic cancer. Remember, we don't screen the general population. We actually do surveillance on high-risk individuals. Some of the more difficult discussions are when you, you the patients don't meet that criteria. They may only have one relative, um, and, and you have to explain to them that we're not holding back a test yet that's been proven to extend your life. We, we're held back, so we really want to concentrate and learn on those patients that meet current guidelines to subject them to what could be annual imaging. So then I go through with the patients the current data on pancreatic cancer surveillance and tell them the, 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 the good things and the limitations. So I think the good things are now is that we have data that shows that you can find it at an earlier stage. And we know that earlier stage translates to better cure. And we've seen that, that the patients who are found in pancreatic cancer under active surveillance live longer. Now, I also tell them that that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be cured of your pancreatic cancer, but every site has those wonderful stories as we do, where a patient's out now 10 years where four of her family members um, had died of pancreatic mm. cancer, including uh, one sister, her mother, and, and two aunts. So uh, it's uh, um, so I, her. I believe we did cure her of pancreatic cancer. It's ten years out, but we still need data for that. So that's a limitation, and I'm honest with the patients, and I tell them that it requires annual imaging because we have to find it when it's small. I also tell them that there's the possibility of finding a cancer in between the screening interval. So, you know, despite us doing a, a screening test on January 1st, before the next January 1st comes down, we may not have seen it on that initial one, a cancer will develop and, and sometimes that makes them not resectable. That's happened to me, it's happened to every major site. Um, it's what we call an interval cancer and it, it happens even with colonoscopies. It's, it's a known risk. Fortunately, it's a rare risk. I'm, I'm proud to say that all of our patients who have undergone active surveillance that we have found a pancreatic cancer have at least been given the opportunity of cure with surgery. And you have to keep in mind, and this is what I tried to get that point across why I'm, I've never been more optimistic, that we're making strides in treatments. And so if we find ways of cleaning up these cancer cells, whether it's through immunotherapies or whether it's through better use and timing of conventional chemotherapy, uh, better targeted therapies. As we, as we integrate that with finding it earlier before they're symptomatic, that's going to translate to potentially, um, uh, I think, long-term cures even. So this is what we're hoping for, but that's a limitation. After I explain that to them, we, we, tell them about the different research studies that we have, including participating in our own UPMC registry that we call the PAGER study, where we put pancreatic cancer patients in there and control patients. And then we offer them participation in some of our other institutional studies, 
But just as importantly, we offer them participation in our consortium studies such as PROCEED. And so we, and almost all of our patients uh, sign up for these. It, it just is a testimonial to that the average person in the United States, we hear about all these horrible things that are going on, whether it's in Washington, D.C., and how people don't get along, or or throughout the country, of course, dealing with the, the, with the angst of COVID. But I can tell you when you sit person to person, we approach these individuals either have pancreatic cancer, at risk for getting pancreatic cancer, well over 90% of these patients participate. And, th and their driving factor isn't that it will help themselves. Their driving factor is that it may help my children or others in society. So it really gives you faith in in. in and in and, and people and, and Americans, and, and I always remember that. And we can do what we could do now and make the advances that we could do now without our patients. And, you know, so I, I just, they're the most important thing. They're the thing that drives everything. I've always said this, this community of pancreatic cancer is pretty special. And, and I don't know, Randy, if it's because you know, the disease and the way it presents itself or the fact that, you know, um, you know, there are limited choices and when, when you do get the diagnosis in terms of treatments and, you know, the survival rate being what it is. But I, I, I it's just fascinating to me. I've always kind of said this in the past that, you know, I, it just it amazes me how passionate people can become and how charged people are in a positive way um you know to help and to create change and to to try to perform this big lift i think the the biggest challenge that we all experience as i mentioned before it's a numbers game right it's 58,000 people but how do we yep. get you know how do we get 250,000, 300,000, 400,000, half a million people here in the United States motivated to do that, you know? And so on that note, I, I, I had a question here for you, but I'm going to shift that to you. So would you say the biggest thing that we need right now for our audience listening at home is if they have a family history of cancer in general and potentially pancreatic cancer somewhere along the way, that they go and get into some one of the registries. And there's there's many of them throughout the country. Precede is one of them. I know CAPS is another one. You know, Precede has 35 centers um, worldwide or 36 worldwide. Would you say that statement's pretty much on point? Well, yes and no. <laughs> I don't want to overwhelm and have patients show up and, and, and go through the cost and, and you know, potentially taking a day off of work if they're not going to, you know, be, you know, if, if so, if it's a remote relative, they probably, they, I, I wouldn't do that. Usually what, what we do when you, th when you think about it from an early detection or genetic risk of assessment, so I always tell patients they're not here for genetic testing. They're actually here for genetic risk assessment. And so sometimes that assessment incorporates offering genetic testing. So if you, nowadays, because we, we try to arbitrarily you know, cut off values of what we think are risks for people developing cancer or having a genetic syndrome, and whether that warrants that threshold of surveillance or testing. So if you look at having one first degree relative um, with pancreatic cancer, 
and you, and you your risk for 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 having on a genetic test is half of what it would be for that person with pancreatic cancer. So you always want to ideally test the informative individual. But as you know, with pancreatic cancer, um, it's not always a luxury that we have nowadays. Now, that'll be becoming more and more common because there's actually universal recommendations for patients with pancreatic cancer to get genetic testing. And so 10% of the time, they'll find something that can then be tested in the unaffected individuals. And if they carry that, that same mutation, they would be candidates for surveillance. And so those family members should be the ones that should be seen at those, the ones who carry the mutation with the first degree relative. Now, if you just have the first degree relative and they, they test a negative for a mutation, your risk is double compared to the general population. I'm not downplaying that risk, but a lifetime risk of about 1.6% goes to 3.2%. And so they have less than a, a 97% chance of dying of pancreatic cancer, a 95% chance of dying of pancreatic cancer. And since we don't have a proven test for doing surveillance, and we could potentially do more harm as we do lots of invasive you know, testing like endoscopic ultrasounds or cost, costly things with our current resources. I don't push for pancreatic cancer surveillance in that setting. But we do know that if you have a couple cases of pancreatic cancer, those are the patients that we should see. Or if you're in the situation where you're a first-degree relative, so that means either a, a pancreatic cancer patient affected a parent, a sibling, or a child, and, and they were not able to undergo genetic testing or it wasn't available at that point in time or a big panel wasn't available and they're no longer with us at this point in time, then you would meet testing criteria according to experts because your yield would be half because mm -hmm. you have a 50% chance of carrying these the genetic predisposition, the, the known genetic predispositions, because they're they're passed on in a 50-50 manner. Um, and so if you, those patients we should see then in, in these types of high-risk clinics. So I would say it's a first-degree relative of someone who was not tested for genetic mutations, or if they were tested for a genetic mutation and found to have one, then they, they, then it's perfectly appropriate for the relatives to come in and get testing. And we usually approach at that point in time, if you carry the mutation, here's the criteria we use when to start screening. And then if there's a couple cases of pancreatic cancer or they carry a mutation that's associated with increased risk of pancreatic cancer in a first or second degree relative. So a lot of times we'll pick up when so, a, a, a woman will have breast cancer and she'll be found to have a BRCA mutation. BRCA mutation, mm -hmm. one or two, for example. BRCA2 is one of the most common mutations we see for, of course, breast cancer, causes ovarian cancer, but the third most common cancer is pancreas. And so those patients right now, if they have a first or second degree relative of pancreatic cancer, should be someone that's seen at a high-risk clinic. Um, we don't know about if they don't have a family history of pancreatic cancer, whether that risk is high enough. Some centers will, will consider doing screening on them, so it, it may be worthwhile. And we, we, we counsel patients all the time about this that we, we don't know. We usually don't suggest surveillance because of all the unknowns that I went through with you in terms of the unknown benefits. 
and, and what their risk is, but they're certainly great members to be in our research consortiums because we can follow them prospectively like Proceed is to see how many of them turn into cancer and whether there's clues about whether we can figure out which one of those families that that individuals that increase with pancreatic cancer without the family history. I love it. It's all very powerful stuff. My last question for you, Randy, and in your experience, and this is a loaded question and most of them are loaded, but what is your, how do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition personally? Okay. Well, so I'm glad you asked that. So just to clarify it up, there are a variety of tumors that arise in the pancreas. And the broad term pancreatic cancer doesn't tell you which type. The one that's responsible for more than 90% of the pancreatic cancers are tumors called adenocarcinomas. So if you have a pancreatic adenocarcinoma, this is what that discussion applies to. And I should have said that up front in the podcast. Other rarer tumors, um, like neuroendocrine tumors, the, right now, those are not patients that, um, outside of some rare um, uh, neuroendocrine tumor-like syndromes, but we don't, those usually are not taken care of in registries like ours, uh, the Proceed and, and uh, CAPS, and, and um, uh, we, we don't screen those individuals. They're not felt to be an increased risk for adenocarcinomas. And their diseases may be more indolent and, and, and don't behave the same way. Yeah, we just had uh, Dr. Pamela Coons from Yale, um, who just came over from uh, Stanford um, and is now locally here in Connecticut. And she's a neuroendocrine specialist. And I think that's an important piece here because I think, you know, if we look back, you know, over the history of the the celebrities or known people that have gotten pancreatic cancer, you know, Steve Jobs and Aretha Franklin had neuroendocrine tumors and not adenocarcinoma, where unfortunately, sadly, you know, Alex Trebek, who just passed away, you know, he was an adenocarcinoma versus uh, the neuroendocrine. No, you're, you're right. And in the, uh, in the hereditary testing, all of that is quite different. Correct. Correct. My last question for you, and probably the one that is most important to our audience here listening where is the best place for someone to learn more about all the great things you're doing over at UPMC? If someone heard something, they're in the Pittsburgh area, or maybe they might be in Nebraska and they want to come see you in Pittsburgh um, and catch a game possibly, where would that place be to learn more about the program and about all the work you're doing there in Pittsburgh, Randy? So if they just uh, search you know, my name in our, in our UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, so upmc.edu, or just as easily if, if they go to uh, the Proceed website, we have a link to our, 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 our program as well, which will give you uh, contact information. And, and quite honestly, it's probably easier to facilitate because it's, it's, it's uh, uh, and identify it because you don't have um, – a number of uh, other obstacles that you get when you have a, a broad search engine that that focuses in on it. Absolutely, um, I love I love that that plug there. So if you go to proceedconsortium.org, scroll down to uh, the bottom where the partners are and click on the UPMC logo, you get a hyperlink straight to Dr. Brand's page and all of his contact information, which is awesome. 
Randy, you know, can I add something? So, yeah, absolutely. And that's the important thing when about these consortiums. Now what we do is when, you know, families live throughout the United States. So what's awesome is that I, when families come to me and they say, you know, while well, my sister lives in New York City, I could go and say, look, go to the Proceed website. We give them the link. We give them the information about it, and they can identify other centers. And we also verbally tell them, of course, but this is easier for them to remember. They're overwhelmed with all the information. Yeah. So it's a great way where we know that people are doing the research because, again, it, it may be a bias, but participating in these registries are just so important for us to, to make gains in, 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 in research. Uh, and to care for our patients and to make it so that we can make this disease initially a chronic disease and then hopefully a, a very curable disease. I'm all for that, Randy, and that's our goal. So thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Really appreciate the insight and appreciate all the great things you're doing there in Pittsburgh and along with the Precede Consortium to move this thing along. We will get through this time. It's a crazy time with COVID, but uh, I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I, I'm serious when I say that because I think this news about the vaccine, hopefully we can get through the next couple of months and you know get back to whatever the new reality is and seeing high-risk patients and you know trying to crack this thing called pancreatic cancer. So Appreciate you being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Well, thank you. Anytime. Thank you, Randy. And as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you heard today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share this podcast. And until next time, be safe. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.